What's up, what's up, what's up? Welcome to another segment of Meninge Toi. I'm your hostess, Lord Have Mercy, and I would like to welcome you to my podcast. What's up? How y'all doing? I pray that everyone is doing well, is doing great. Still got a lot going on in the world right now and the country, but you know what? We're not going to even dwell on the negative stuff. I just pray that everyone is doing great and I'm sending you all positivity and love and lights and just just awesome vibes. Sending you all virtual hugs right now. If you are a faithful and fellow listener, I would like to thank you for tuning in. And if you are a new listener, I would like to welcome you. Thank you for tuning in. I welcome you. I welcome you. I welcome you. I want to say something really quick. I noticed in the last episode, I introduced myself as Keeks. But in the episode before that one, I said, I'm introducing myself as Lord Have Mercy. So I just want to apologize for the confusion because clearly I'm confused. <laughs> um... I'm still going by Lord have mercy. It's just going to take a while for me to get used to it. So I'm sorry for confusing you guys, but just want to start it out there because I know someone's probably listening like, didn't she say she was changing her name? Well, damn, she just went back. I'm sorry. It's Lord have mercy. Just want to throw that out there. But let's go hang into our announcements. First and foremost, make sure you guys follow my podcast. You guys can find and follow me on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Meningetwa. Secondly, make sure y'all follow and stream my podcast team, SFA Charlotte. That is S.F.A.Charlotte. You guys can stream our podcast everywhere you can find my podcast. And then lastly, make sure y'all share and promote this podcast with your family, your friends, your even your enemies, man. That was a little bit of sarcasm, but I mean, sure, if you still keep in contact with your enemies, go ahead and share with them too. Um, but thank you guys for tuning in and let's go ahead and get into the episode. Okay, so the topic for this episode is Buddhism and oppression part two, pretty much a continuum of the previous episode. So the goals I have for this episode are to explain how Buddhism can become more diverse, inclusive, and supportive to marginalized people. Secondly, I'm going to list the ways that Buddhism encourages people of color to combat oppression. And then thirdly, I'm going to explore some of the exercises offered by the religion as a way of combating oppression. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and get into our core questions. First core question asks, how can Buddhism become more diverse, inclusive, and supportive to marginalized peoples? Second question, how does Buddhism identify or categorize oppression? Third question, what does this identification do for, sorry, what does this identification or categorization do for believers of the religion? And then finally, what are the exercises Buddhism offers to assist believers to combat oppression? Okay, so first question How can Buddhism become more diverse, inclusive, and supportive to marginalized peoples? Before I answer the question, I just want to break down the question. Diverse, inclusive, and supportive have some things in common, but they are not the same thing. 
And I think it's important that we emphasize that because I feel like sometimes, especially when you're studying um, race relations and you're having conversations about diversity and inclusion, it's like, you know, people change, people say these words a lot. And it's one of those things where I feel like sometimes you just go around saying things, but you don't, especially if you're just throwing it around a lot, if you're not doing the research behind the subject, if you're not um, being, if you're not educating yourself as much about like the topic, you may just feel like, oh, they're the same thing. Diversity, inclusion, oh, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's not. Diversity focuses on representation. Inclusion focuses on having policies that are culturally supportive to those that are being represented within whatever uh, group that is calling for the diversity or an inclusion. Um, And then support. I chose to add this piece because support, I feel, focuses on having that network of people that are going to uplift you. You know, whenever you're doing something, it's awesome to have a support group. You know, those people that you can count on, those people that are going to hold you accountable out of love, those people that are going to uplift you, encourage you. Those people that are going to be there for you when you're feeling down, you may be feeling discouraged. It's always important to have that support. And I feel like whenever it comes to, uh, again, studying race relations and working in diversity and inclusion, it's important to have support groups because, you know, depending on the people, um, well, I'm not going to even say depending on the people. I feel like in doing that kind of work, it can be exhausting. Um, Sometimes it can be overwhelming. So having that emotional support, having that physical support, having that financial support, all those things are very important in in tackling these issues. So I wanted to break those things down so we don't just assume that all those things mean the same thing because they don't. So how can Buddhism become more diverse? inclusive and supportive to marginalized peoples. Um, one of the, before I even get into that, I want to read this amazing quote by an amazing article written by Jan Willis. You guys may have heard me mention this article in a previous episode. It is titled, Yes, We're Buddhist Too. And the quote reads, in a recent interview, an African-American woman and Nigerian priest, Miyoki Kane Barrett spoke openly and directly about what's required to make Buddhism in America more inclusive. Quote, I think outreach has to happen. End quote. She explained, quote, centers that are predominantly white need to become more educated about the challenges facing people of color. As a person of color, I've always faced people telling me that race is not an issue or that I'm overreacting. It would help a great deal for Sangas to become educated about unaware racism, institutional racism, and internalized racism so that no one's experience is negated simply because it isn't common to the entire community, end quote. 
drink some water real quick because it's very long. Hold on. Excuse me. All right. Feel free to rewind that, you know, because that was a lot to take in. Um, very direct and straightforward. Few things about this quote I want to point out. One, she's specifically referencing um, uh, Buddhism in America. Two, she's stating that there's an issue. In saying that, by specifically stating that, a lot of the Buddhist centers and temples in America are led by white people. Thirdly, I feel that she's insinuating that as a black woman who's a Buddhist, a black, yeah, a black woman who's a Buddhist, she's been told or it's been suggested that the issues that she faced as a black woman, that they're not that big of a deal and that race is not an issue and that she's overreacting. I'm trying to think if I want to get on three real quick. Yeah, let's go ahead and get it out the way. No, we're going to go back. We're going to touch on that later. So just in looking at those first three points, first let's address the fact that this is a black woman who's a Buddhist. Again, we touched on this in a previous episode, but that just reiterates that not all American Buddhists are white. Buddhists come from various racial identities, black, brown, like Tinks, Japanese, um, uh, damn, Hawaiian, um, you know, from various racial, racial identities, you know, they come from various racial backgrounds. So you have that is number one. Um, secondly, that the centers are led by predominantly white. They're they're led by white people. That's an issue because right there you don't have diversity. These it's important to have diversity within the Buddhist community because again, not all Buddhists, all not all American Buddhists are white. And this gets into understanding how psychological mm, how do I want to write this how things impact your psyche you know some people see having diversity as oh you know it's just tokenism or oh it's just you know to get the numbers up like no diversity is important because diversity again it gets at representation if you are a believer of this faith and you you want to see yourself being represented, not just in the sense that, not just in the fact that you want to see someone who looks like you also being a leader or a believer of this religious community that you're a part of, but you also want to see your perspectives being brought to the table. So here it is, you have this black woman who's I'm pretty sure she's spoken to some Buddhist teachers about, you know, some of the things that she's experienced as being a black woman, a black woman. And these 
educators can't, these teachers can't even connect with her because they don't relate to the experiences she's experienced as a black woman, specifically regarding her oppression. That's, it's important to have diversity for that reason, because these white males can't understand oppression. They don't experience harassment at work, you know, from people making fun of your hair, people wanting to touch your hair. Oh, your hair is so cool. Oh my gosh. How do you get it to do that? Oh my gosh. Did your hair grow overnight? How did you do, you know, they don't have to deal with being harassed by people. Uh, when you walk into the store, you know, people following you because they think that you're stealing. They don't have to deal with being, um, racially profiled in any case, they don't have to deal with, you know, law enforcement harassing them because, you know, they're afraid and they believe that all black people are thugs and criminals. They don't have to deal with these things because racism was created to uplift a certain race and keep other races down. And white males reap the most benefits from racism. So no, they're not going to understand any of her experiences or anything that she speaks about that references to her oppression because they don't experience that. And this is why having representation and having diversity within the Buddhist community is significant because you have people who are believers and they can't relate. They can't connect to their teachers because their teachers don't understand the oppressions that they that they experience. And again, it's important to have this representation because religion, for some people, it's their lives. Some people turn to religion when it is all that they have left, when they feel like they've been beaten and brutalized by the world. They turn to their faith because that is one thing that feeds their soul. That is one thing that uplifts them. That is one thing that they draw strength from. It's their well of strength. Imagine being a believer of any faith and you're being bombarded with oppression outside of your religious community. And the one place you turn to for refuge and for peace of mind, it shuns you or it tells you, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Oh, well, it's not real. That stuff that you experience, yeah, that's not real. You know, I have a black sister and she doesn't experience anything like that. Or I have a black brother and he doesn't experience any, he hasn't experienced anything like that. So, you know, you're just overreacting. That hurts. That hurts. This is why having diversity is so important. Um, inclusivity touches on having laws. And I feel like in this, you know, I don't think there's laws within the Buddhist community, but, you know, within the teachings, within Buddhist teachings. And I'm not really familiar with how this works. Um. So far as like, you know, if new teachings are published, you know, um, 
or they just recycle the teachings that have already been passed down from over the centuries and things like that. But having teachings that will be inclusive to black and brown people, you know, having teachings that deliberately speak to how to respond to racism and things like that. And it's like, Again, it kind of makes you ask that question where it's like, okay, well, what if these teachings don't directly address those things? What does that say about the people who wrote these things? You know, what status were they speaking from? What perspectives were they speaking to? And um, the best way I could think about this is like, you know, Social status, you know, it varies upon every culture, every cultural community. When you have a society, you know, you have laws in place and things like that. Social status is one of those things where it's like some people may be able to get away with certain things because of their social status, whereas some people may not be able to get away from certain things because of their social status. So, I'm trying to connect inclusiveness to the laws that operate within a society. And I feel like in explaining this, I'm kind of getting lost in a sauce myself. Um, But in having inclusivity, it's pretty much having that, making that deliberate choice to create And I don't even like to say laws because, you know, I just feel like you hear laws, you immediately think of politics and things like that. But where, I mean, this really isn't, I mean, some may argue it is, but um, creating laws that specifically cater to racial issues. That's where inclusivity in Buddhism will come into play. And then in having that support is pretty much having a support group, a network of people that black and brown believers can turn to, you know, when they are being beaten and brutalized by the oppressions that they face in the real world, in everyday life, at work, at home, at school, in their families. So just to do a a quick recap, um, Buddhism can become more diverse by intentionally having, and I don't know if it's a hiring thing or if it's, I don't know how it works, how, how you get to become a Buddhist teacher, but in having more black and brown Buddhist teachers and educators and leaders intentionally Meaning you purposely, you make the choice. It is something that happens on purpose because clearly it's not happening that way. Clearly the American Buddhist default is to hire, to hire. Uh, that's not what I meant to say, but um, to, what's the word I'm looking for? Come on, damn it. What is it? To like white males, they move up. Why is it only white males? Why is it only white people? No. If that's the default, 
that's a problem. The fact that that is the default is a problem. So yes, now we have to make it intentional. Now we have to make it a purposeful decision to to promote black and brown people to become Buddhist leaders and educators and teachers. Buddhism can become more inclusive by incorporating more, I don't like to say laws, but I can't think of another word right now, um, more laws that will speak to issues of race um, and how to combat, ways to combat oppression within the world and within the um, the nation. And then finally, Buddhism can become more supportive to marginalized peoples by having that network of people. And I feel like that kind of goes back into the diversity because, you know, and having that diversity you, right there, you have an, um, a network of leaders who are black and of black and brown leaders who have gone through their own experiences of oppression and things like that. So now you have believers who can turn to those leaders and, you know, they can all come together and uplift one another, encourage each other, strengthen each other, help each other. That's how Buddhism can become more supportive to black and brown people. Um, another thing that was mentioned in the article, uh, Yes, We're Buddhist Too by Jan Willis, was hosting retreats specifically for people of color and you know I've said people of color a couple of times I don't even like saying that anymore maybe I'm tripping maybe I'm reading too deep into it but you know I don't like that you have white then you have people of color I feel like people of color is one of those things where it's like it just kind of clumps all non-white racial identities together oh you have white then you have people of color I don't like that I don't like that. But again, maybe I'm tripping. Maybe I'm reading too deep into it. But I just want to throw that out there because I don't want to say that anymore. Um, but hosting retreats that specifically cater to black and brown people. And even then, brown. Mm, we're just, okay. Um, I'm not sure how many of you guys have been on a retreat. But, you know, in retreats you have different themes, different topics. You know, there's many different kinds of retreats. So, the way I visualize this taking place is that you will have a retreat that let's just say, for example, you have a retreat that will focus on how to deal with uh, racial harassment in the workplace. Having retreats like that will that's an example of how that can um, be supportive to those to black and brown Buddhists. American Buddhists, because racism is something that black and brown people deal with in America. And if you have this religion that acknowledges that racism is an issue and they want to provide a solution in trying to help their belief, their black and brown believers in, um, I don't even want to say coping, but in combating these oppressive systems you know hosting a retreat can be a start now some may argue how is hosting a retreat gonna combat racism look damn it it look it, it of course you know there's more things that have to take place and more conversations that have to be had um 
in addition to having a retreat, but um, retreats are very, very therapeutic, very reflective. Um, they also provide a lot of opportunity, a lot of opportunities to grow, to heal, to reflect. But imagine going on a retreat that's supposed to focus on racial harassment in the workplace and it's being led by a white teacher. I know if I go on a retreat that's supposed to focus on something like that and I show up and I see this being led by a white person, I'm um raising my hand. Um, excuse me, are you facilitating this entire thing? I want a refund. Because what the hell do you know about racial harassment in a workplace? You know, it's in it's white people don't have to deal with those things, you know? So that's again why diversity, representation, why those things are really significant. If you are interested in sponsoring this podcast, be sure to contact me at meningetois at gmail.com. Meningetois at gmail.com. I'd like to thank y'all for your time and let's get back to the episode. Next question. How does Buddhism identify or categorize oppression? The best answer I found in answering this question is that Buddhism identifies oppression as suffering you guys heard me explain it in previous episodes um and how buddhism the belief system and the philosophy works but buddha states that we all living beings experience some type of suffering and we spend our lives trying to find ways to end our suffering or to escape this suffering or to feel this suffering with pleasure just so we don't feel it anymore and buddha encourages us to reach enlightenment to end our suffering because this is the true way to end um yes to end your suffering and the way that you would reach enlightenment is It's done through a series of meditations and practicing self-discipline and practicing unconditional love and compassion. Suffering and identifying oppression as suffering, I feel like that's very significant within the Buddhist religion because that unites. It brings all believers together. So, You know, in a previous question, I was talking about, you know, how there's this um, lack of understanding, you know, between Buddhist teachers and Buddhist leaders and Buddhist believers, you know, and um, yeah, between Buddhist teachers, Buddhist leaders and Buddhist believers, specifically within America. I feel that acknowledging oppression as a form of suffering will help. It would create this understanding because it's now it becomes, you know, something that's not black and white or something that's black and brown or something that's brown and white. Now it's something that we all can understand because we all suffer. We all experience suffering. Now, that's not to say that in acknowledging oppression as a form of suffering that that gets rid of the suffering, you know, that that gets rid of the, sorry, that that, get rid, that that gets rid of the oppression, you know, the hierarchies are still in place, racism, sexism, uh, 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 heterosexism, uh, 
classism, all those things are still in place. They're still operating, you know, those hierarchies are still in place. Um, but I feel that this will help those, this will help create understanding and bringing everyone on the same ground, if that makes sense. And I feel like people understand in different ways, you know, sometimes you understand out of empathy because you've gone through a similar experience or you know someone who's gone through a similar experience. Sometimes you understand out of sympathy, you know, you may not have gone through a similar experience, but um, just emotionally you sympathize with um, what someone may be experiencing or going through. And sometimes you understand out of educating yourself. I feel that sometimes, you know, if you're not knowledgeable about something or an issue and you want to get it, you will take the time to educate yourself to learn more about a certain topic or a certain thing, whatever the case may be. That's not to say that everyone chooses that route, but, you know, that's just me talking about different ways that I feel that people try to understand things better. Um But having that understanding is very important because one, it brings all believers together and then two, it creates that understanding. And then three, and it's like, maybe I'm contradicting myself a little bit, but I'm going to try to, you know, not do that. It doesn't eliminate the social hierarchies, but it kind of, and I know I said this already. It, uh, it's like, I don't want to say it doesn't eliminate them, but then that's like the first word I could think of. It's just say, for example, you have a person who's benefiting from the social hierarchies that are in place and, you know, they have a lot of privileges, you know, just from their identities. And then you have someone who's being oppressed by these very same systems that are in place and you know the obviously you have this big um you have this lack of understanding between the two because you have the person saying that they're being oppressed and then you have the person who's uh not aware of the oppressions and they're benefiting from the oppressions and they don't understand why this person who's being oppressed is saying that they're being oppressed because they don't see it they don't experience it so it can't be real you have this By having this label of seeing it as suffering, it kind of, hmm, it's like I'm trying to be very careful with my words. It kind of gets rid of that because it's like you start to see each other in a different light. And maybe that's the reason why I'm hesitant with my words, because it's like, I don't want it to be one of those things where it's like, oh, well, you no longer see each other as being black or brown or white, you know, because I feel like it's important to recognize those things because, you know, again, these are, there are systems that are, um, that are linked to these very same things. So we can't overlook those things. Granted, at the end of the day, you know, we will perish, you know, we will die, you know, our spirits don't have a specific racial identity or anything like that. Um, But 
it just brings everyone on the same ground. And maybe, maybe this will be understood better when I get into the next question. Next question. What does this identification do for Buddhist believers? This does a few things for Buddhist believers. First and foremost, it unites them, brings them closer together. Secondly, it creates understanding in which they will be able to connect um, and be able to be united and to be able to empathize with one another. Thirdly, it teaches them compassion and love um, and it also teaches them to combat oppression through non oppression uh, hold on it teaches them to combat oppression which is a violent oppression through these violent systems through non-violence and I know that was very wordy I just had to throw that in there though um because these oppressive systems that are at work they are violent in the ways that Buddhism teaches people to combat these systems is through nonviolence and it's it's very important to recognize that um because you know love compassion understanding all those things are nonviolent and um when dealing with Systems that are very divisive, systems that seek to divide people, uh, divide and conquer at its best. Um, it can be very hard to um, hmm. when you have so many things at work to keep people divided, it can be very hard to unite to come together, to have that community that these systems are trying so hard to keep people from developing and maintaining. And it's important that Buddhism does this because, again, you know, religion is something that is very significant, um, very powerful, very influential. And because it is all of those things, you know, it's very important that we pay attention to um, not only its teachings, but how it responds to oppression. And I came across this amazing quote um, written by Jan Willis. And in this quote, you guys will hear her. Well, you know what? I'm not going to even tell y'all. I'm I'm just I'm going to read the quote. You know why sit up here and try to explain it to you when I'm going to read it to you. Uh the title of this article is We Cry Out for Justice and the quote reads We cry out for what seems so simple fair and equal treatment under the law. I feel like I read that weird. I'm sorry. I'm going to read that again. We cry out for what seems so simple fair and equal treatment under the law. But to view each other as equals is precisely the problem here. The conceit of I prevents us from seeing others, any others, as equal to us. So some human beings actually harbor the thought that some lives matter less than others. It seems to me that only if we harbor the deep-seated, erroneous conceit 
that I am better than others, can we harbor the view that black lives or any lives don't matter? This don't matter. This conceit is our downfall, end quote. So in reading that quote, I immediately thought of the Black Lives Matter movement because, and not just the Black Lives Matter movement, I just thought of the phrase Black Lives Matter because when you say Black Lives Matter, some people get very defensive about that. You will say Black Lives Matter and some people will respond, all lives matter. Well, don't all lives matter? And the reason they get defensive about that statement is because they feel that us stating Black Lives Matter is us speaking from um, a place of conceit, this conceit that Jen is referring to, this conceit that states, oh, well, I'm better than you or my life is more valuable than yours. When if you take the time to examine and educate yourself and inform yourself on racism and classism and sexism and heterosexism but in this place we're in this well nope 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 we're gonna still we're gonna be inclusive to all those systems because all those systems impact black people um and transgender oppression when you examine these systems and you see how they treat black people you will understand why black people shout Black Lives Matter. Because so many times in this society and in the society, they're trying to condition us that black lives don't. You look at the history of this nation and you see how black lives were being treated. You know, they um, try to treat us as if our lives are disposable, as if we don't matter, as if we're not important. And that's not true. We're not saying this to insinuate that our lives are more valuable than any other person's life. We're saying this because society is trying to condition us and condition non-black people that black lives don't matter. And I feel a need to explain that um, because I know I was that person, you know, where it's like, I would say black lives matter. And then, you know, if someone says, oh, all lives matter, you know, I'll get upset because I'm like, well, no, that's not what I said. I said black lives matter. And why can't you just understand, you know, why I'm saying that? And that's because, you know, people who don't, who aren't aware of these systems, people who don't know how these things operate, people who have internalized these systems. You know, you don't recognize these things. You're so accustomed to what's being thrown at you 24-8 at work, in the media, at school, at home. You know, like, if you're not exposed to any people or areas or environments that will challenge your thinking or that will um come that will declare these things as being wrong you know you will just unconsciously believe these things as your own you'll just take on these things as if they're your own ideas and you won't even question them and 
it's also one of those things, too, where it's like, I wonder if they, and when I say they, I mean those who get defensive by us shouting Black Lives Matter, if they get defensive by us saying that, and if their defensiveness um, comes from them being rooted in their own conceit, you know, like... If you weren't rooted in your own conceit and not just that, you know, also if you were aware and knowledgeable about, you know, these systems that are in place, you wouldn't even assume that I'm speaking from the same conceit that you're speaking from or that you may be thinking of. Um, there was something else I wanted to say. What was I going to say? Dang it. It escaped me. Maybe it'll come back. Um, but yeah. Uh, there was something else I wanted to say. Whatever. I, it'll, it'll come back. It'll come back. I'm just going to go ahead and move forward to the next question. Not the next question. Sorry, my next point. Um, I also feel that by identifying oppression as a form of suffering this encourages um this encourages buddhist believers to be more like buddha because buddha was very buddha was very embracing he was very um, he was open and welcoming to people coming from all backgrounds of across the spectrum, no matter if it was racial backgrounds, your age, your gender, your sex. He was open to all sorts and all, you know, all variations of people. And I have this quote, um, taken from another article that was written by Jan Willis. It's called Yes, We're Buddhist We're yeah. Yes, We're Buddhist Too. And the quote reads, Here was a man who actually in practice rejected the systemic the systemic oppression of his country's people by denouncing the caste or varna system of the Aryans originally founded on color discrimination and allowing all castes and women to enter his community of practitioners, end quote. And there's a few things about that. You know, I definitely want to, that makes me want to do more research on the caste system um, because I wasn't sure if the caste system was something that existed within the Buddhist religion. Um, but that's not even speaking towards the Buddhist religion. That's just speaking of his country that he lived in at that time, which was in India, which makes sense because the caste system originated in India. Um, but I did not know that the caste system was founded on color discrimination. So I'm definitely going to be doing my research on that. Um but Buddha, as you can see, Buddha was someone who was very welcoming to people coming from various backgrounds. And if you are aware of the caste system and how that operates, um, when you are a part of the highest caste, you cannot 
fellowship with someone of a lower caste. If you're someone of a lower caste, you cannot fellowship with someone of a higher caste. Like they're very strict on how those things function. So if the caste system is something that was going on in his country and um, I'm pretty sure with Buddha coming from the highest caste, he wasn't supposed to be fellowshipping with people coming from the lowest caste or lower caste. So here you have this man coming from the highest caste or, you know, who um, was born into the highest caste and he's fellowshipping with those from all walks of life that is rejecting systemic oppressive systems because he's basically saying, man, screw that, forget that shit. Come on in here and get these, get this wisdom. Yes, we got we got greater things at work here. Come on. I'm pretty sure he didn't say forget that shit, but I'm just, you know, just 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 paraphrasing a lot of it. Um, but that's very important because. I mean, to this day, you know, we still have these oppressive systems at pl- in place and Buddha welcomed all people. And it wasn't one of those things where it's like, okay, well, he welcomed people and basically said, oh, well, because he wasn't dismissive towards the things that made people different. He was understanding, especially being someone that comes that came from a higher caste, you know, because he came from a higher caste, he understands how people who um, were born into a lower caste were being treated. He understands how, you know, him being a man, how women were being treated, you know, it's just having that understanding. So it's like you're not dismissing these differences. You're acknowledging these differences. You're understanding and acknowledging how society is treating people based on these differences, but you're still welcoming them, embracing them and offering them the same um, teachings that you're giving everyone, regardless of the walks of life that they come from. And not only that, you're not mistreating them because they're different or because society tells you to treat them different. That's very, 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 very important. Um, and then again, reiterating, um, Buddha's teachings and practicing unconditional love and showing compassion and and using meditation and practicing meditation, practicing meditation and using meditation to learn how to transform your despair and your sufferings into strength and wisdom. And that's just a, you know, recap on everything that Buddhism uh, and identifying oppression as a form of suffering, how, why that's significant for Buddhist believers. Final question. What are the exercises Buddhism offers to assist believers to combat oppression? The two exercises that I found are meditation and yoga. Meditation, I'm pretty sure we all have heard of it before. Maybe you all do it from time to time. Meditation is, hmm, it's a spiritual practice that is done to, hmm, how would I describe it? I really don't know how I would describe it. I would just say that it's very spiritually cleansing and mentally Hmm. 
spiritually cleansing, spiritually healing, mentally invigorating and relaxing. That's how I would describe it. And there's many, many different kinds of meditations. Um, You know, you have meditations that are done alone. You have meditations that are done in groups. They have eating meditations or food meditations. I've done one of those before. They're very cool. I mean, who wouldn't want to eat and meditate? Like, what? But I digress. Um, So, yeah, there's various kinds of meditations. And one thing I can say that I enjoy about meditating is just taking that moment to get in tune with yourself to just that quietness. I mean, you have guided meditations, you know, where there will be someone speaking to you. But when you take that moment to just close your eyes and focus on your breathing and you're paying attention to your body, you're paying attention to your thoughts, it's very cleansing, And I promise you, after you meditate, bruh, you feel like, you just feel so relaxed. You feel so calm. You just feel, if you have anxiety, I would strongly encourage you to meditate. And actually, I know of a couple of apps. Actually, hold on, let me have a couple of apps on my phone for meditating. One of them is called Liberate. This app, I was told, is specifically for black and brown people. And they have a lot of meditations. Like when I was talking about that retreat earlier and I was saying if they have a retreat that focuses on or that's going to be talking about racial being harassed by your coworkers at work, you know, they saying racist shit, liberate, download liberate. It has it's a red square with the little white person sitting crisscross applesauce. The next meditation app I have on my phone is called Meditate. I personally haven't used this one yet, but um, I definitely would strongly encourage you guys to practice meditation. Um, They have guided meditations as well. And then you also have meditations where you just kind of will sit there for five, 10 minutes. I strongly encourage you to do it during a time when you are free, when you're not busy, Don't try to do it at work. I tried doing it at work one day. I got pissed off because everybody kept calling my name, but it makes sense because, you know, you're at work. You should be working. Um, But I would strongly encourage you guys to use those apps if you're interested in finding out more about meditation or if you've never done it before, you want to give it a try. Or if you're interested in meditation and meditating and you just, you know, you're looking for more ways to practice that. So, yeah, go ahead. Give those a, a try. Let me know what you think. And then yoga, I feel that yoga is another form of meditation, but I feel like meditation is one of those things that's more so for the body and the spirit. I feel that yoga is like a body, a physical meditation, like your body's way of meditating. Um, Because when you do yoga, you know, you're stretching again. And I don't even want to say it's a physical meditation. Maybe I'm saying that because, you know, you're actually like using your body um, to stretch and, you know, you're getting in tune with your muscles and things like that. But it's not just a physical. It's not it's not physical exercise. Like it's really something that's. very spiritually hmm 
I would say spiritually enriching because it really does allow you to get in tune with your body. When you do yoga, you really pay attention to the sensations that you feel and it's just, it, it feels amazing. Like, I feel like it's a great way to get in tune with your body. Um, it's also a great way to relax because, you know, some people may not enjoy working out, you know, because it may be too strenuous or, you know, they may not like sweating or anything like that. But if you're looking for something that's a little bit more, that's not as intense, you know, it's a little bit more relaxed, I would strongly encourage you to try yoga. And there's so many different um, uh, resources for yoga. I don't have any yoga apps on my phone, um, but I do have a workout app that does have some yoga exercises in the app. The app is called Workout for Women. It's a pink box that has a white W in the middle of it. And they also have amazing workouts. So make sure you check out some of their workouts as well. But they do have yoga exercises if you are interested in trying yoga. Um, also YouTube. Man, they have so many different yoga exercises on YouTube that you guys can check out if you're interested in trying yoga. And I feel that these, by Buddhism offering these two exercises for believers, it's very important because it's one of those things where it's like, they're not just telling you, it's almost like having a a, a reaffirming, um, what is it? I don't want to say it's reaffirming. You have the teachings that are being taught, but then you also have something that is going to help you and reflecting on those teachings and in helping you to relax, to calm down, to alleviate the stress and the anxiety and the frustrations that you may go through on a day-to-day basis. And I feel that this is something that makes Buddhism unique because, you know, these are things that are great. They do great things for the body, mind, body, soul, and spirit. Meditation and yoga, they help you get more in tune with yourself to get more aligned and These are things that you can actually do on your own or with someone else. This isn't something that you, these aren't things that you would necessarily need someone else to do for you. It may be something that you may need to be taught, you know, um, in a sense that you're doing them properly, but these are things that you can do on your own. And again, I just feel that in having these activities and practices that people can do during their free time, like especially because they're so peaceful, they're so relaxing, they're so cleansing. I feel like this is something that makes Buddhism very unique. But that pretty much wraps up everything for this episode. I would like to thank you guys for tuning in and coming in to get these spiritual vibrations for your mental stimulation. I hope you all have a beautiful, blessed week and an amazing day.